0: Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. This podcast provides analysis of the DC films produced by Warner Brothers. This episode was written by myself, with Alessandro Maniscalco, Rebecca Johnson, and Sydney. You can find us on Twitter at OttenSam, at Raverin, at DerbyKid, and at Wondersid. You can also follow the show at JLU Podcast. In this episode, you'll hear from me and Alessandro as we cover scene 25 of Wonder Woman which is when Diane and Steve go to the pub to recruit Samir and Charlie, and they are joined at the end of the scene by Etta Candy and Sir Patrick Morgan. Before we get into scene 25, we just wanted to quickly mention something we forgot in our discussions of the War Council and the British General scenes. Those scenes were a follow-up to Steve's comment back on the boat, where he said that they would take the notebook to the men who could do something about it. Now that we've seen the men who can do something about it, it turns out they were quite disappointing and ineffective. So Diana was actually kind of right on the boat when she said that she's the man who can. Steve thought she was a bit silly for saying that at the time, but this is a case where Diana ended up being proved right. Of course, she won't do it entirely alone. Steve is going with her, and as we'll see here in this scene, there are also the Odd Fellows, a ragtag group that will actually be more proactive and effective than the so-called leadership. By the way, we will usually refer to this group as the Odd Fellows, taking the name from the Wonder Woman Steve Trevor comic book special issue, uh, which was published in June of 2017, written by Tim Seeley, with art by Christian Fernandez. Before we go into the details of the scene, we just wanted to address the fact that some people have criticized the Odd Fellows as being too stereotypical. And this criticism has some merit and is worth thinking about. After all, Samir is a deceitful Moroccan, Charlie is a drunk Scotsman, Chief is the noble Native American looking to barter and trade, and Steve is the confident alpha male American. But it's important not just to stop at this point with the stereotypes. And instead, we have to think through the rest of the movie and the way their characters fit into the overall story. As Patty Jenkins explained it, quote, We're playing with stereotypes with all three of them. That period was such a sexist time, and there's no way to pretend it wasn't. So I embraced those stereotypes, and then tried to defy your expectations, end quote. So yes, the stereotypes were there as a starting point, but it's because the filmmakers wanted to take the characters somewhere more complex and more human by the end of the movie. To this point, we also wanted to share something from Zach Stentz. He's at MuseZach on Twitter, and he's a writer for the Flash TV show and possibly the writer for a future Booster Gold movie. But he said on Twitter about these stereotypes in Wonder Woman that he was happy to see that the Odd Fellows weren't generic badasses, but, quote, Good men wounded by life's unfairness. End quote. To expand upon that idea, Samir is not just a soldier and a hustler. He is someone who had other dreams and other ways that he wanted to use his talents, but the war and the color of his skin did not allow that to happen. Charlie is not just a drunk sniper, but a person having difficulty dealing with PTSD. Through him, we recognize that dealing with war and trauma is not as simple as just being tough and saying that you're fine with the violence. He is trying to hear the music again in his life. And Chief, we gradually learn, is not actually a profit-seeker, because we see him refusing to take payment in veld. He is a man who yearns for freedom and who is a loyal friend and someone people can rely on. And finally, with Steve, he's not just an American war hero with vigor. He is also someone who is harboring a deep loneliness and who is willing to be selfless when the time comes. So overall, the odd fellows are very mortal and very flawed, a great contrast to the demigod Diana. They're sort of on the edge of being stereotypical, or they maybe start out stereotypical, but they have genuine heart in their characters, which we think makes them work. And the audience's gradual realization that they are more complex than the stereotypes kind of parallels Diana's own learning, that things in man's world aren't so black and white. There is good and bad in everyone, and if you look for the good then you have a foundation for love and respect. By the way, this purposeful progression by the filmmakers, starting with a stereotype but then trying to bring it somewhere more complex by the end of the movie, also reminds me of Crash, directed by Paul Haggis. Crash won Best Picture in 2004, but it was kind of a controversial award because many people felt Crash dealt with racism in a very stereotypical way whereas Brokeback Mountain from the same year was a more nuanced artistic take on another social issue, gay and bisexual relationships. I don't want to get into one film versus another, but I did want to say that according to Paul Haggis, Crash was doing the same thing that Patty Jenkins was trying to do with Wonder Woman. Haggis said explicitly that he wanted to start the movie in a very stereotypical way with white characters in typical white roles, and people of color in stereotypical roles like service people, shop owners, dealing with gang membership. But then gradually, Haggis said he wanted to bend those stereotypes and break them by the end of the movie. So yes, you can point to parts of the movie as being stereotypical, but that was the point. He wanted to confront the stereotypes, so that's why he started with them. To critique the movie because of the stereotypes and its setup is kind of missing the point just like critiquing Wonder Woman because of the stereotypical introductions of the Oddfellows, is also missing the message that Diana and the film deliver by the end. So alright, with that backdrop in mind, let's get into scene 25. Here's Alessandro.
1: We get a first-hand perspective of walking into a British pub as Diana experiences it for the first time herself. The atmosphere is lively and energetic with laughing and singing, and the crowd is composed of carefree and inebriated men who don't exactly pass as soldier types. This offers a nice contrast of party-going to the morbid tone of war, and it helps to keep a sense of positivity in the movie. Diana, seeing the indulgence in vices, drinking, smoking, women, etc., doubts their suitability as reinforcements and questions if they are even morally good. She is still viewing things through the simple lens of good and bad. Steve's response is intended to suggest they are moral, but they have done bad things. This leads us to Samir, who is actively trying to con some soldiers. It's a nice introduction to the character, because in just a few moments we will see the sorts of things that he is known for doing in the past, but throughout the movie we will get to know him and see that he is much more than just a con man. Samir, by the way, is played by Said Sagmawi, a French-American actor with Moroccan heritage. His dark hair, beard, and hat make him really stand out visually as an odd fellow. and as we'll see with Charlie in a moment, it seems like they really tried to cast people with diverse and unique faces to make up the Oddfellows team. Samir is interrupted by Steve, pointing out the gullible nature of the soldiers, given Samir's vaguely detailed story, by asking which prince he is referring to. He, of course, has more important matters to discuss with Samir, so his current khan is the least of Steve's concerns. Steve calls Samir Sultan Angora Minx Kashmir, all of which are types of wool, and perhaps this is Steve's half-hearted way of keeping to Samir's bogus story, but he does it facetiously, which offers us some more humor. Samir excuses himself to reprimand Steve, but Diana's beauty distracts him. And to top her beauty, Diana proves she has brains by engaging in a multilingual showdown with Samir as they converse in Spanish and Mandarin Chinese until Diana ultimately one-ups him with ancient Greek, putting him in his place. This continues the efficient introduction of Samir. We see his interest in women, and his attempt to be charming, and we see his linguistic abilities. But even more so, this is a good demonstration of Diana's extensive knowledge of languages, in addition to the Ottoman and Sumerian from the previous scene with the generals, and it becomes a running connection between the two characters. We get a nice joke from Steve, who we now identify as someone lacking in knowledge of foreign languages. And with that, we quickly transition to the next character we are to be introduced to, Charlie. The transition happens elegantly as Samir uses his just-established expertise in languages to segue the scene to him. Diana, expecting to come here meeting fighters, assumes the bigger burly fellow is Charlie, which offers us a continuous stream of light-hearted humor in the spirit of the scene. Charlie's beatdown, drinking, burp, and slurred speech suggests Charlie is drunk, and possibly even a drunkard an idea reinforced by his double fisting and story of mistaking the other fellow's glass for his. We learn from Steve that Charlie's specialty is that of a sniper. Diana views this as fighting without honor because it involves killing sneakily without confronting your enemy. Charlie's response gets to the root of the group's motivation, getting paid. And with that cue, Samir asks what the job is quickly followed by the question of the pay for him and Charlie both. This sets up a mini-arc for the characters, as they will shift from being about money to being about a good cause for its own sake, and it shows that people are not just good or bad, not just selfish or selfless, but people have the potential for both. Next, we get a funny bit of Steve dancing around the subject of the pay, stumbling with words as he tries to say there would be many non-monetary benefits to be gained. Samir turns to Diana and shows off yet another language fluency, speaking to her in French. Still swooning over her beauty, he attempts to bargain for another non-monetary payment in the form of a picture of Diana's lovely face. Diana responds in kind, offering the real thing over a photo, informing Samir that she will be accompanying them on their job. Samir and Charlie scoff at the idea of dropping off a poor, fragile, and defenseless lass at the war front. This is yet another example of men looking down on women and misjudging what they see. Then, with impeccable timing, a situation rises for Diana to showcase her speed, agility, and strength as she quickly saves Charlie from getting shot and throws the assailant across the room. Charlie seems unfazed as he continues to sip his drink either because he didn't notice the threat as a result of being inebriated, or because his alcoholism puts his interests more on drinking than survival. Samir is both frightened and aroused. This line got a solid laugh at all our screenings, and it makes sense for Samir who is presumably surprised and intimidated by Diana's supernatural power, but also because he is impressed with her abilities on top of his already obsessive interest in her beauty. Diana gives Steve the gun she took from the gunman, showing no interest in the tools of man, but entrusting it to this man for safekeeping as if returning it to its rightful owner, a man. Meanwhile, Steve holds it and looks at it as if thinking, what do you expect me to do with this?
0: And I just have a few quick thoughts to add about the early parts of the scene. First of all, I think it's a great shot of Diana when she stops the gunman and is holding his wrist, and I like the look of Gal Gadot's face there. It's kind of like the alleyway scene where they give her an iconic sort of comic book panel in conjunction with the quick action sequence. One nitpick, however, is that even though I know she's very fast and agile, I don't really understand the physics of how she got to the other side of the table without knocking people over or hitting the table on her way. Even though she's a demigod, she can't just move through physical objects. But the other thing I wanted to comment on was showing versus telling with Samir and Charlie. For Samir, we see his linguistic abilities, and his tendency toward conning, which are skills that he will use to contribute with the team later. But for Charlie, we are just told about his sharpshooting. We don't actually see any useful skills demonstrated. So because we aren't shown his skills, one might criticize this introduction of Charlie's character. But I think what they choose to do here is appropriate, because with Charlie, his character arc will be about how the war has taken a very capable man and turned him into a kind of sad shadow of himself. He is lost into drinking, and he is now unable to perform his sniping duties, and he has also stopped singing. But it is great to see later in the movie that Diana inspires him to start singing again. And even though he never does end up sharpshooting in the movie, he does contribute to the team in other ways. In fact, it's kind of nice that Diana helps Charlie to bring back some of the positive aspects of himself and she doesn't bring back his dishonorable form of killing, because after all, he doesn't need that to be a whole person. Alright, going forward in the scene, Etta shows off some more convenient timing as she arrives at the pub just as they are talking about resources for the mission. We don't actually know how much time has passed exactly, but now she's here right when she's needed. She does mention that she's late, so they were expecting her, but what they probably weren't expecting was that she brought Sir Patrick with her. Sir Patrick, being Ares of course, wants to keep a close eye on Diana, so it would make sense for him to try to be a friend and offer help so that he can learn what their plan is. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer, so to speak. Of course he can't let on that he is tugging the strings of war, so he tells them that his help must remain unofficial and secret. Steve's plan, as he tells it, is to destroy any additional weapons facility they may find and eliminate Ludendorff and Maru. It's a pretty straightforward plan, or at least the goals are pretty straightforward, and the audience can now get behind those goals, and it helps us as an audience follow along with the story. Sir Patrick says he was a younger man once, and had he been in better health, he'd like to think he would do the same as them. And this isn't entirely false. Ares was once younger, and when he was in better health, he did disobey his superiors and kind of set out on his own. He disobeyed Zeus, and he fought for a cause that he believed in. But now, in his somewhat weakened state, Ares has become more of a manipulator. Though, of course, he will summon some of his old power and might at the end of the film. But anyway, in keeping with the idea of having his enemies closer, Sir Patrick proposes that Etta run the mission from his office. This allows him full access to and surveillance of the team and their operations, which comes into play later when he tries to stop them from attending the gala. This assignment for Etta also gives her a role to play later in the film, and Lucy Davis has a great reaction shot here upon hearing the news that she'll run the mission. Run them. She ends up being very capable, but she's surprised by getting the chance here at the start. He gives them money to help them start their mission, which is just what the fellows were discussing before Etta and Patrick arrived. Diana seems very happy because this seems to confirm her earlier evaluation of Sir Patrick, that he is a good man who is trying to do what's right to save lives and end the war. His offering help also furthers the misdirection to the audience, because he seems to be here a really good guy, definitely not Ares. Now speaking of the Aries side of Sir Patrick, there are two possibilities that we can consider here. On one hand, maybe he is supporting the mission because he actually wants Diana to go to the front, because he knows that she will be devastated and emotionally rocked by all the carnage and death that she'll see there. Perhaps Ares is thinking that this bloody side of mankind will turn Diana against Man's world and make her more likely to eventually join him, or at least make her likely to kind of abandon Man's world to their own devices rather than saving them. Maybe she will even lose some of her friends in the war if she goes to the front, and losing friends might enrage her or depress her. Of course, it almost does just that at the end of the movie when she loses Steve and she is starting to get enraged but she recovers and chooses the side of love. But anyway, from, from this perspective right now, Aries could be angling early on for Diana to see this ugliness and then turn against man, and all of this kind of uh, seeing the negative side of mankind and its ugly side could culminate in Aries explicitly tempting her at the end of the movie. But on the other hand, one might think about this differently. Maybe Ares was not trying to recruit Diana from the start but only did that as a spur-of-the-moment thing at the end of the movie, and it just came to him there. In this case, Ares is just helping them because he wants to keep tabs on them. And even though his intervention gives them a boost towards success, which seems counterproductive from Ares' point of view, maybe he's just figuring that they will still probably fail. That happens to be a miscalculation, of course, but maybe he was playing those odds here at the beginning. Additionally, maybe he is sending Diana to the front not to dishearten her about mankind, but to see how she performs and to try to gauge her powers. So we have two views, Ares trying to groom Diana for temptation against mankind, and Ares trying to monitor Diana. How do these views hold up later, when Sir Patrick explicitly tries to stop them from attending the gala? Well, in the first view, Ares wanted Diana to see the front but he doesn't want to help her too much, where she would be successful in her mission. So moving beyond the front and proceeding to the gala would be more likely to lead to mission success, so he doesn't want that, so he would draw the line at them coming to the gala. In the second view, it's similar. Ares simply wants to keep an eye on them, but he doesn't want them to succeed. So he helps them a little bit, but he doesn't want them to mess up his plan to launch the gas attack. What about the dialogue with Ares at the end of the movie? Well, from the first point of view, that dialogue at the end is just the culmination of Ares' desire for Diana to join him. He has ushered her into the horrors of man's world, and then at the end he taunts her with the flaws of mankind, and he throws the terrible doctor poison right in front of her, tempting her wrath. All of this is building and building throughout the movie, subtly put in place by Ares. But Diana makes the heroic choice at the end and chooses love over vengeance. She has seen the dark sides of man But she saves them anyway because she also sees their potential. That choice is how Diana wins and Ares ultimately loses. One might say that Ares should have known Diana would never join him because she was created for the specific purpose of killing Ares. But even if Ares knows her origin, he still might believe that he can turn her. From the second point of view, where Ares was just monitoring not tempting Diana, one can consider that Ares was just lying a lot at the end, After all, he seems to lie when he says he's the god of truth, not the god of war, or not only the god of war. He also could be lying about mankind stealing the world from the gods. Assuming Hippolyta and Antiope's stories were true, then men were good until Ares' influence corrupted them. This means it was Ares' own doing that caused the destruction of paradise, which he claims to want to restore. And moreover, if we believe Hippolyta and Antiope then when the gods attempted to intervene by coming to the Amazon's defense against man, Ares killed the gods one by one to prevent them from ending the fighting, which means Ares was on the side of man. And so maybe he's lying when he later says that he's against man. So from this view, you can never really believe what Ares is saying at the end of the movie. And we should instead believe Antiope, who says that Ares' goal is endless war. Thus, in tempting Diana, Ares was just, at the end, trying to avoid fighting her, or he was trying to get an upper hand by causing her to hesitate. He's not really against mankind overall, because if he wanted to wipe them out, he could. He's keeping them around for some reason. In the comics, the reason is explicit. He keeps them around because man's wars and hatred fuel Ares' power. Here in the film, that might also be the case, but it's not as explicit. Either way, we can continue to think about the motives and goals of Ares as we continue in our analysis, and he will reveal quite a bit later on when we get into the details of that dialogue, and we'll see if we can actually believe anything he says. That's our analysis of scene 25 of Wonder Woman. Next up, we will switch over to Justice League for a moment because we want to meet Arthur Curry. But anyway, thanks for listening, we really appreciate your support, and for those of you who have been with us since the very beginning of Batman v Superman Scene 1, then you might be aware that this is our 100th episode. It's been two great years, and for a podcast that just started in the spur of the moment one weekend while I was trying to process BVS in my own mind, it's strange to think that now we are three movies later, 100 episodes in, and we are looking forward to more with Aquaman and Shazam on the horizon. I just personally want to take this moment to thank each of you for listening, and thanks especially to those who have recommended this podcast and spread the word to others. This is a really great community that cares a lot about filmmaking and about these characters, and it has been fun going through the films in detail together. We've been through some rough times, with more than our fair share of negativity out there on the internet, but we've stuck together and we've had many great conversations, including with people directly involved in the films, so that's really exciting. I can honestly say that this podcast has grown to be much more than I anticipated at the beginning. When I first started breaking down BVS, I was basically doing it for myself, and I thought that maybe there would be a few dozen or maybe a few hundred people who would find the podcast and be interested in the content. But I've been thrilled to find that there are so many people, thousands in fact, who love BVS and who are interested in looking closely at the other JLU films as well. And along with the audience, the analytic team has also grown. I brought in Alessandro early on because of his insights on BVS. And then for Wonder Woman, it was the perfect time to expand with Rebecca and Sydney, who have brought great perspectives into the mix. And then Nick came along to help us finish off Suicide Squad and to bring some unique energy to Justice League. And it was great to do the full commentary with him recently. So I feel really lucky to have an amazing team all contributing to the podcast. But of course, none of this would matter if it weren't for the listeners. So thanks again, and I hope you'll stick with us into whatever the future may hold. And if you don't want to stick with us, then that's fine too, but just be sure to at least listen to the Suicide Squadcast and Man of Steel answers.